Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. This is You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thank you very much for doing that. We have a wonderful guest today. As you know, the B segments are always guests, often with books, and that's no different today. Emily Kwiansky completed her residency in internal medicine and psychiatry and is a diplomat of those boards in psychiatry and neurology. Her husband is a board-certified neuropsychologist who specializes, as many do, and now there's a shortage of them currently, in evaluating and treating patients with cognitive impairment and dementia. They are partners in a private practice, Kwiatkowski Neurosystems, based in Springfield, Mass. The book they've written, Dementia Prevention, takes a very different tact than many as it puts all of dementias together And that's probably because similar preventive strategies work for many aspects of brain wellness as the same things work for the heart, cardiovascular system, the immune system, even the musculoskeletal system, as we'll get into in a few minutes. We, of course, are brought to you, as usual, by lifefirstnaturals.com, the makers of both probiotic, truebiotic, and bovine colostrum. You can go to their website to see the double-blind randomized controlled trials that tell you why, for example, I take bovine colostrum daily as it helps prevent upper respiratory infection and the bloating feeling many people do when they vigorously exercise, which I do, which also helps prevent dementia. At least I'm hoping it does in my case as well as in the epidemiologic literature. The other sponsor is our Longevity Playbook, which has many of these things that do prevent dementia. The 33 things that we have found in at least two studies in humans shown to make a difference to brain wellness, many of which, almost all of which, are in this book. So, Emily, thank you for coming on, and thank you for writing a book entitled Dementia Prevention. And, of course, you've got to love the subtitle, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain. I summarize what I took from one part of the book, the early part, is that almost all forms of dementia, although they may have different biochemical and pathologic findings have the same areas that we know of for prevention. Is that correct why you link them all together? You are absolutely so right, and you've stated it very clearly. Thank you for doing that. It saves me a lot of work having to do it, but you're right. Regardless of what the pathophysiology is that's involved in a specific dementia, the basic underlying fact is if you can protect the brain in all the other ways that are important vascularly and from other forms of cell damage, you're much more likely to have less of a problem with whatever pathophysiology exists. That's why we took the approach, as did the World Health Organization 
and as did various other organizations that have looked at the body of evidence with respect to prevention. And they figured out that it doesn't matter whether you've got Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease with dementia or frontotemporal dementia, these factors are known to reduce the risk of developing any kind of dementia to the point of one out of two can be prevented. That's been actually proven at this point. So we're looking strictly at the evidence. So one out of two being prevented, it may be a low number, meaning one out of two is without going maximally on any of these things. So it may be when you, no one has done a study, all of them together. They've done some of them together in the recent trials, but clearly not all out and all together. So for example, in the latest trial, hearing wasn't looked at. Isolation wasn't looked at. Smell wasn't looked at. Vision wasn't looked at, all of which have important roles. For example, in the recent Hopkins study, 29% of dementia was thought related to hearing. And hearing aids have gotten less expensive. So hopefully that will continue so that more than 15% of those with hearing problems will get hearing aids. That's the, the data in the U.S., only 15%. So you have a wonderful chapter that is titled Normal Cognitive Aging. What is normal about cognitive aging, let me ask you. And I think the, the hypothesis or thesis in the chapter is outstanding. So I'm not going to steal your thunder on this. Tell us why you wrote that chapter, because it's such a good chapter. Thank you. We appreciate that. Well, normal cognitive aging, as you know, Michael, is something that happens to all mammals, whether we like it or not. And what the data says to us is that our brains are not as good functionally at the age of 50 as we were when we were in our 20s and 30s. And that is due partially to genetic predisposition, partially due to wear and tear, due to all the things that are not controllable, but also that's when we begin to see the effects of high blood pressure, high glucose levels, lack of exercise, sleep apnea over a long period of time. By the time that we are in our 70s, there is a significant decrease in our speed of processing, in our executive function, in our ability to pay attention. Hopefully we make up for that in wisdom. So we're not saying that somebody who's in their 70s or 80s needs to be demented. We're just simply saying that there is a decrement in what their mental abilities will be over that period of time. Dementia is different than normal cognitive aging. Dementia is very much a pathological process. Now, can the normal aging be altered by, for example, speed of processing games? Or can it be, that is, what we associate with normal, for example, in the basic field of lifestyle choices, we see that normal in aging of your arteries isn't normal. That is, it's what is usual, but we don't take care of, as you mentioned, high blood pressure or LDL cholesterol optimization or inflammatory mediator optimization through food choices, et cetera. 
and the wear and tear. So there's a compound, for example, and I'll give you the example in my field of cardiac prevention, is an LDL cholesterol lowering it from 140 to 70 in your 30s may only be about a 6% benefit by 40. But by the time you're 70, it's about a 40 or 50% benefit. So there's compounding of benefit by preventing things that prevents, quote, normal aging. Is that true, do you think, in the brain? I absolutely agree with you completely on that. Unqualifiedly, when we take a look at the numbers that went into determining what was normal cognitive aging, people were not excluded who had high blood pressure or bad cholesterol or were 20 pounds overweight. There were big epidemiologic studies that looked at the general population. But I agree with you completely. The sooner we start preventative measures, such as control of homocysteine, control of the LDL, get the 90, at least 90 minutes of exercise in per week. I do 90 minutes a day myself. The better our brains will be through our later decades of life. We believe that regardless of whatever age you take a look at these, implementing these preventative factors in your life. I'm now 71. I will still put into place everything that's in my book. But the earlier we can get people to do this, we can get them to do it in their 20s and 30s and 40s. We know that the effect will be magnified, as you so beautifully put just a couple of minutes ago. I'm talking with Emily Kuyansky, who is the primary and first author with her husband, Mitchell Kuyansky, of Dementia Prevention, Using Your Head to Save Your Brain, a Johns Hopkins Press health book. So that's one of the reasons, and, and that's what to me came through with your book on that chapter on normal cognitive aging. The one I wanted you to add to was on senses, obviously, because I feel that smell is such a key, and we found out that smell is such a key as well with COVID-19. I am afraid, just like the Spanish flu led to Parkinson's disease and Parkinson's dementia, 40 years after it occurred from 1917, 18. I'm afraid of that happening with COVID-19, post-COVID-19, since the viral particles that seem to work their way up the olfactory nerve, the nerve in the nose that helps you with smell into your basal ganglia and are found in the same areas as the Spanish flu and Parkinson's disease are. So I wanted you to include more. You did include a fair bit on some subjects that are key in the book. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about the Charlie Pease case of reverse dementia. And he was the 57-year-old Vietnam vet you wrote about with sleep apnea. But I'm going to let you tell us about that in a second and talk a little bit about the senses and how important they are. Well, the senses are critical, as you already pointed out. We know that vision deterioration can lead directly to dementia, so can loss of hearing. So that with our patients, at least, we advocate getting regular checkups and doing everything that they possibly can, including getting hearing aids, 
And I would love it if people started to be screened for hearing loss in their 40s, as opposed to when they're finally standing around trying to talk to their family and they're constantly asking, what, what, or completely misunderstanding something that someone tells them. I'm so glad to hear a doctor saying that what we have experienced with COVID-19, you're absolutely brilliant in your projection, I believe, that what we are going to have in terms of earlier onset dementias in the next 30 and 40 years will be directly attributable to COVID, specifically because we know that it enters up and through those parts of the brain that are exquisitely sensitive to other pathophysiology, such as what we see in Alzheimer's disease. So I couldn't concur with you more about that. But with respect to our veteran, our 57-year-old with a case of reversible dementia, really and truly, he came in and he was experiencing either a mild combined Alzheimer's or vascular dementia, or as they called it on the PET scan, a straight Alzheimer's disease. Well, we fixed everything. We fixed the hyperhomocystinemia, got him back on controlling his cholesterol, got the high blood pressure down, but he really did not want to even use dementia medications. He was lost to follow up at the VA for about, I want to say, 18 months. And the next thing we know, here he is in seeing me again. And his wife insisted that he come back in specifically because the VA doctor insisted upon getting another PET scan at the same hospital where the first series of PET scans were done. And lo and behold, they came back with a diagnosis of reversed dementia. His brain was now looking perfectly normal in terms of glucose uptake. And when we tested him neuropsychologically with gold standard neuropsychological tests, he was at a perfectly normal range. And by the way, he stayed that way. The only thing that really made the difference is we identified his obstructive sleep apnea, got him using continuous positive airway pressure for at least six hours a night. And when I examined his downloads, he was faithful to doing that every single night, virtually over that entire period of time. He was one of the very first patients I had so there are some, what I would call easily, I can say easy for the physician to prescribe a CPAP device or inspire, not as easy for the patient to use them routinely, although inspire has made a difference in some patients, much easier to use. But in any case, the point is that this is, again, a area where there are reversibilities a excellently pointed out in the book, just like there are with hearing loss and social isolation and difficulty seeing and getting cataract surgery or whatever is needed to help you see or learn to use the reading devices that we have and be part of the posse and have purpose in life again. I want to thank you for writing the book. It is an excellent book. In part three, there is a dementia prevention checklist, which goes through the factors that one needs, such as homocysteine, MMA, vitamin D levels, some of the cholesterol levels, the medications, a whole bunch of others. I would 
add, obviously this is a short list. I would add one of the things that was known in the old days, we used to use digoxin preparations to slow the heart in atrial fibrillation before ablation came. And that's still used to a small degree now. But one of our largest understandings, if you will, that was surprises that digoxin slows the brain more than it does the heart. So it was a reversible cause of dementia as well. The book is called Dementia Prevention. And as you can tell, I have a strong interest in it as well. What is good for the heart is good for the brain, is good for the immune system, is good for your bones and musculoskeletal system. So they all seem to function well. Emily, my last question, it is clear you do many of these things. Are there any that you skip as a, uh, you can't see Emily, but she looks like about 40 years younger than her <laughs> stated age, uh, 71. So Emily, are there, uh, is there anything you don't do? No, really and truly. I have my hearing aids in. I wear my glasses all the time or my contacts. I exercise 90 minutes a day. I eat seafood preferentially. I drink minimal amount of alcohol. I absolutely do not do drugs, especially marijuana, and I urge everybody to stay away from it. My homocysteine is at below nine. My methylmalonic acid is below 225. Vitamin D, I keep around 70. You know, I'm reading from your playbook, Michael, just as much as you're reading from mine. <laughs> do you do speed of processing games? I've been impressed with the recent data, and, and my this is so recent as it couldn't have made it in the book, the recent data on speed of processing games, improving the repair system, turning on the gene that causes repair, produces NFAS4, turns on that gene that repairs nerves. So do you do speed? Or I, I found those are uniquely make me more aware of a lot of even when driving, I feel like I'm a better motor vehicle driver because of speed of processing games. Have you done those? Do you do those for your patients? What happens, Emily? Or do you do them yourself? I haven't recommended those. Which ones would you suggest, Michael? So on our longevity playbook, I, with the, the two with the best data are brain HQs. I have no vested financial interest in brain HQs, but it's brain HQs double decision and freeze frame have the best long-term data. Three randomized controlled studies showing that 18 hours of practice over a 10-year uh, period. So it's, although it's just 1.8 hours on average a year, it's uh, 10 hours in the first month. And then it is four hours in month uh, 11 and four hours in month 35 in the randomized controlled trials decreased dementia incidence in a large 2,800-person randomized controlled trial by about 48%. And there are two other complementary studies, one of which shows increased acetylcholine in key brain areas, and the other of which shows this very similar findings to the first one in a study done independent of the uh, people who did develop brain HQ. So some data anyway. In any case, this is an outstanding book. 
dementia prevention using your head to save your brain. To our listeners, thank you for downloading us. This is 1153B. The author is Emily Kliansky and her husband, Mitchell. Kliansky is spelled C-L-I-O-N-S-K-Y. So just look up Dementia Prevention on Amazon. It's a Johns Hopkins book. They practice and still do in Springfield, Massachusetts, probably close to the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. If nothing else, you should go and visit the practice just to see how young Emily looks. Oh, Michael, you are wonderful. Thank you for doing such a good job of bringing information that's really vital to the public. You do a great job. Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for keeping up the great work you do. Thank you, but especially thank you, our listeners, because you're what motivates us. By the way, you'll want to listen to 1152A. I went into a little bit on the data about the pesticides and Parkinson's disease, as well as the data on olfactory system, your smells, both Parkinson's and dementia in general as well. Thanking you again. We'll be back next week. Hope you are too.